Uh, the passage today is Genesis 35, verses 1 through 15. It can be found on uh, page 29 of your blue pew Bibles. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the tabernacle tree, sorry, the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. Because their God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. This is the word of God. Well, before we come to this passage, let's bow our heads and hearts and pray one more time. Father in heaven, it's good for us uh, to be in this season, um, both of remembering your great works to your people uh, and also of looking ahead, um, of remembering the many long years of, of waiting for your first coming and looking ahead with eager anticipation to your second, um, because it, it, it molds us into this pattern uh, that's given to us that um, we are to remember uh, your works and we're to set our hope uh, on you. Um, and in so doing, we'll be able to obey. Um, Father, as we live in a world that in many ways um, is not the way it's supposed to be, uh, both in ways that are big and grab uh, national and even international headlines, um, and then more poignantly, um, more, more painfully, the ways that the fallenness of this world is, is visited upon us um, as individuals and as families, um, as, uh, as we uh, mourn um, sickness and, and loss of loved ones, as we uh, 
um, grieve uh, the travails um, of, uh, of our children and, and our neighbors uh, and our friends. Um, Father, as we um, face the anxieties of what tomorrow uh, will bring, or next week, or next year. Um, Father, in, in all these things, um, you have commanded us uh, to come before you, um, to hold these things up to you, uh, and to say, you are God. Uh, you are our Father. Uh, you are the one who has made us. Uh, you are the one uh, who knows us intimately, who knows all things. Um, and you have said that you are a good father, able to give uh, to his children what they need. And so, Father, we ask uh, for the capacity to trust you. And we ask that, that this season uh, of, of waiting, of remembering, um, of looking both back uh, and, and ahead uh, would form in us more and more the ability to do that. Um, Father, we want to be changed uh, by, this, by this Advent season. We want to be changed by this uh, worship service. We want to be changed by this time uh, that you have put before us and for which you've gathered us together uh, to sit under your word uh, and to listen. And so, Father, I pray for each person who is here um, that you would meet them, that, uh, that your words, um, as, as we have heard them read and, and as I will preach them, um, would convey uh, your spirit and would do the work that you intend uh, to, uh, to support, uh, to uh, sustain, to, um, to grow the faith uh, of each person here. Father, we thank you that uh, you are able to do this um, and that it's by your promises um, of um, mercy, of ultimate justice, um, of healing, uh, that we have the confidence to gather in front of you uh, and to come, come before your throne of grace and to ask for healing and help in a time of need. So, Father, we, we pray all these things uh, in your name. And as we turn to your word, I pray, as always, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, you may have noticed as we've gone through the past uh, several weeks, and as we've come close to the end, we're, we're now in the last chapter of, uh, of our study uh, in the life of, of Jacob, uh, the lives of Isaac and Jacob, I suppose. Um, you may have noticed that um, things took a decided turn uh, last week, that, that after a few weeks where things like, it seemed like things were turning up, things were going well, um, we seemed to be hitting a, a high point uh, in Jacob's life. Um, he was exercising faith. He was reconciled to Esau. Um, last week, uh, things took a rather horrific turn for the worse. And, and you might have wondered, what in the world? Um, how did we get there? Uh, even, even after, um, you know, I think we uh, have, have said many times during this series that when we look at the lives of Isaac and Jacob, and for that matter, when we look at the lives of, of all of these Old Testament saints, we're not looking at the lives of people who are perfect uh, or, or who achieve perfection. We're not looking at people 
who can serve as moral exemplars for us that we could pattern our lives after. We're looking at people uh, who are saved and yet sinners. And, and the main thing that we're supposed to get out of these stories um, is not so much uh, the character of these people as the character of God, the character of a God who is gracious and powerful to work through them. So that might have prepared you for the idea that even if Jacob is on the upswing, he could turn down again. Nevertheless, you want to say, what in the world? Um, in this passage, in chapter 35, we get a little hint um, of what was uh, going on. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the plot of this, um, of this section is pretty simple. Um, God commands Jacob to go to Bethel, and Jacob obeys. And once he's there, God appears to Jacob and renews the covenant promises, and Jacob rededicates the altar and the place as well, Bethel. Um, so what is it that we see uh, really going on here? Um, well, Bradley alluded to part of it last week. In, in his sermon. Um, if you remember, he mentioned that when God appeared to Jacob the first time, remember this was back in chapter 28, um, Jacob was fleeing for his life. He was fleeing alone at that point. Um, Esau was hot on his heels. Um, and he came to this place, Bethel, and God appeared to him for the first time. And that's where he had that dream, right? Jacob's ladder, that famous scene. Um, and God made these promises to him. They were totally unconditional promises. He said, I will be with you. I will bring you back to this place. I will give you this land. I will not leave you until I've done everything that I've promised to do for you. In response, Jacob made a vow. And he put conditions on his vow. God had made unconditional promises, but Jacob... Um, uh, put conditions on his vow. He says, well, if God takes care of me and sustains me and does all these things, then he'll be my God, and I'll come back here, and I'll worship him. Um, so this wasn't a very good vow, right? It, after God makes these unconditional promises to Jacob, it wasn't great of him to put conditions on his vow, but for better or for worse, that was the vow. What we saw in chapter 33 and 34 was that he hadn't been fully obedient to that, that he hadn't come all the way back to Bethel. Um, that instead of coming all the way back to Bethel, he had stopped short um, and settled closer to Shechem um, amidst the Canaanites, amidst a foreign people uh, with, with foreign gods. Um, and then in this, in this chapter, in 35, we see that it wasn't just a matter of where he was and who he was with. We see that Jacob actually had allowed the presence of those foreign gods to get into his own life, uh, into, his own, into his own family. Um, if you look at verse, well, right at the start, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourself and change your garments. Now, when he says, put away the foreign gods that are among you, when I read that, I said, wait a minute, what? What do you mean the foreign gods that are among you? 
We haven't dealt with that already. Now, you remember, where do those foreign gods come from? Um, back when, when Jacob was with his uncle Laban, when he was fleeing, um, his wife Rachel stole some of the household gods. It's not clear whether she did that just to spite her father or whether she had a superstitious belief that this would actually help. But either way, she took some of those. Um, you have to understand that they lived in a world with lots and lots of gods. Every different locality had its own, its own god. Um, every place you would go uh, would have its own gods. And wherever you moved, you had to figure out who was god, who was in charge, um, how do you get on their, on their good side. And so at times in the Bible, throughout in this, in this culture, you see people in some ways hedging their bets um, by gathering lots of foreign gods to them. Um, you see some of this in uh, the story with Jonah, right? When they're in Jonah, when, when the, the flood comes upon the ship and everybody's praying to their own gods and the storm's still in stopping, so they grab Jonah and say, hey, Jonah, pray to your god because ours aren't working. Maybe yours will, right? Um, this is the basic idea. It's not clear who's God. It's not clear who's in charge. Um, so let's, let's hedge our bets. Um, this is the culture that, that Jacob found himself in. And I think it's really easy for us uh, to point our finger um, at that kind of, that kind of idolatry. Um, and forget that in some ways we live in the same kind of a culture. Um, in two different ways. So first of all, the fact that uh, we live in the midst of a culture um, with lots and lots of different belief systems um, around us. Um, Jacob's family and we'll see this in the rest of the Old Testament, that many times they're called to separate themselves. They're called to pull away from the surrounding peoples, um, to be sure that they're not uh, infiltrated by the worship of, of, of foreign gods. But starting in the New Testament, the call changes. Jesus sends his disciples out. He says, I want you to go out into all the nations. I want you to go out and make disciples. I want you to go out and baptize. Um, over the past two years, we've done two different sermon series, one in Second Peter, or excuse me, in First Peter, um, which is addressed to the elect exiles, right? Peter addresses all of his readers as the exiles throughout Asia Minor. Um, and then this last summer, we did a whole series on the idea that the church is called to be a blessing to the nations, this idea that we are called not to separate ourselves from the world, but to be in it, to be amongst people uh, who don't worship the same God that we do. Um, we're not called to separate ourselves. We're called, rather, to be a people in exile. But we are called always to worship the one true God only, uh, even while living in the midst of many different gods. And this is the second way that our situation is like theirs. Uh, it's not just that we're surrounded by people who have different belief systems. I think we can go further than that. I can say um, we're surrounded in the midst of many different gods. They don't have the same physical form. They're not like little figurines or statues uh, in the way uh, that Jacob might have encountered them. 
but there's lots of different gods that demand our attention. Um, Neil Gaiman uh, is this British author. He, he's best known for the Sandman uh, series of, of graphic novels, but he also wrote this novel called American Gods, which later got turned into a TV show that, as far as I know, didn't do very well. Um, but the book was pretty good. Uh, American Gods, it imagines a world in which all the gods you've ever heard of, they're all real, right? So the Greek gods are real, the Roman gods, the Norse gods, the Egyptian gods, they're all real. Um, and they're always seeking worshipers. And in, in modern day America, they're running into competition from these new gods with names like technology uh, and media uh, and wealth. And then there's, there's this god that's, he's called the intangible one. As you get to know him, it turns out he's kind of the embodiment of the invisible hand of the market, right? Um, there are all these different gods surrounding us. Um, I put on the cover of the bulletin this week uh, a quote from, from David Foster Wallace, um, the, uh, the, the novelist. Um, this is from a speech he gave. It's a commencement address at Kenyon College called This is Water. You can actually look up the whole speech um, uh, called This is Water. It's worth reading. Let me read you a little bit more of that, of that quote. I'll, I'll start with what's on the, the front of the bulletin. So he says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. It goes on. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally bury you. Worship power. You'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. David Foster Wallace never claimed uh, to be a Christian. He never really claimed any, he never really claimed what he was. Um, but this idea that everybody worships uh, is something that we would thoroughly agree with. It's part of being human. Uh, we are made to worship. We're made to worship something. The thing is about all those things that he mentioned, uh, about money, about beauty, power, intelligence, none of those are inherently bad things. Those are all really good things. They are all really good gifts uh, that God has given us. The thing is that they are good gifts, but they make lousy gods. And when we worship them, what ends up happening um, is that we have to feed them more and more of ourselves. Um, what we're seeing in this passage, I think, I think we can see the impact that it had on Jacob, um, that his worship of God uh, wasn't complete. 
that his obedience to him wasn't complete. We saw in the last passage how driven by fear he was. We're going to see in in this passage how misplaced that fear uh, really was. Because what we really see as we go through this whole passage, 35, 1 to 15, um, is how God is not like the other gods. God is not like the other gods that were around in Jacob's day, and God is not like the other gods that are around in our day. Uh, And this is what we really need to know. Uh, These other gods are described in the Bible as gods that don't have eyes, or excuse me, they have eyes, but they can't see, and they have ears, uh, but they can't hear. And so where the scriptures talk about the people being like that, having eyes but not seeing, having ears but not hearing, it's because we become like what we worship. So let's talk a little bit about how we see God as being different from the other gods here in this passage. Well, in the first place, I mentioned before that Jacob was walking around in a world with lots of gods. And most of those gods were local gods, local deities, right? So if you're in Canaan, there's one set of gods. If you're in Egypt, there's a different set of gods. Um, The first thing, one of the first things we see here um, is that God is a God who is everywhere. And he is God everywhere because he's the creator. He's God over all. Um, Jacob knows this. Uh, He says, let us arise and go up to Bethel, that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Um, That's a really good way to name God. Um, It'd be really good for each of us to think about how is it that we could remember and think about how God has answered us in the day of our distress and has been with us wherever we have gone. That he has never been restricted by time or by place. Uh, that he is God everywhere. That he is God over all. And he always answers us in the day of our distress. The next thing we see in this passage is how the power of this God is such that that fear that Jacob had in chapter 34, remember he was, he was angry at his sons uh, for taking vengeance for their sister, uh, because he was worried about what it would do to his reputation among the people, uh, and whether they would then come after him. But what we see in, in verse 5 is that he had no reason to fear. It says, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. God had made Jacob a promise, that I am not going to leave you until I do everything for you that I have promised you. And one of the things he had promised is, I'm going to bring you back here. I'm going to bring you back to Bethel. I'm going to bring you back safely. God has been faithful to that all the way through. I mean, Jacob, when God made that promise, Jacob was alone. He had nothing. Um, He was heading towards his uncle. Didn't know what that was going to be like. God was with him throughout those entire 20 years um, of being manipulated and exploited. And he leaves his uncle's house a wealthy man with a large family. And now he's come back and he's even reconciled with his brother Esau. Like the one thing that he would most have feared um, has turned out well. God has been faithful again and again and again. Jacob really had nothing to be afraid of. 
Um, he could have kept going. Maybe the most important thing, though, that we see about this God and how this God is not like uh, the other gods um, is at the end of this passage, or in the, in, the, in the last section, is that we see that this God is the God of restoration. This is the God of restoring things to the way that they're supposed to be, and that that restoration takes place in his house. It takes place when he brings us home uh, to him. What God does when he appears to Jacob at, at Bethel is to simply repeat uh, everything that he has said already. He says, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. At that point, he's going back to the promises all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come, shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. What we're seeing here is a renewal of the covenant after there's been every reason for God to walk away from it, after there's been every reason to see Jacob having broken it again and again. God, having made unconditional promises, having never said, I'm only going to love you if you serve me, I'm only going to take care of you if you're faithful to me, he made unconditional promises to Jacob, and here he is simply repeating them, saying, I am still the same God. I am the God who chose you when you were Jacob. I am the God that renamed you Israel. There's something similar taking place every time we gather for worship here. Um, you need to know this. Um, I think we say this often enough uh, in our liturgy, but it, it just bears repeating. Uh, God is the one who gathers us here each week. You know, I, I know it, it, it seems like you know, we make a bunch of decisions on Sunday morning that end up with us getting in our cars and driving, and we all end up in the same place. And that's true. That's true. Um, but whatever role it is that we're playing in, in getting ourselves here, we need to understand God is the one who gathers a people. God is the one who makes us a people. I mean, we could all get in the same room together. But without the work of God, without the work of God's Holy Spirit, that wouldn't make us a people. God is the one who gathers us together. And throughout this worship service, throughout this weekly renewal of the covenant, this weekly reminder of God's goodness to us, we are at every step simply responding to what he has done first, right? Um, so we invoke his presence in response to his promise to be present with us. Uh, we confess our sins in response to his kindness and his mercy that moves us towards repentance. We give tithes and offerings in response to his generosity uh, to us. Um, God is always taking the initiative to gather us together in order to have our hearts reoriented towards him and away from the other gods, the other things that, that clamor uh, for our attention. It's interesting that when Jacob comes to the place 
it says he built there an altar. I'm in verse 7 here. He built there an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. El Bethel. So you remember what Bethel means. He named the place Bethel back in chapter 28. He woke up from that dream, and he said, this is the house of God. And that's what Bethel means, house of God. Now he calls it El Bethel, which means the God of the house of God. It's just, like the, it's, it's just like when his name was renamed to Israel, one who struggles with God, his name was oriented towards his relationship towards God, and now he's renamed the place in the same way to orient it towards his relationship uh, towards, towards God. I remember early in my days... Um, at Christ Thinking in Cambridge, uh, we used to support a team of missionaries in London. Uh, we, uh, Christ Thinking in Cambridge still does support uh, these, these missionaries. Um, and they, they work among the Southeast Asian community um, in London, which is enormous. Um, and we would send teams of people over there. I never had the chance to go. Um, but I remember one time the team went, it came back, and they told us this story uh, about visiting a, a Hindu temple uh, in the midst of, of downtown London. Um, and, they, they, you know, while they were there, um, a guy came in, you know, taxi pulled up, he jumped out of the taxi, he was wearing a three-piece suit. He came in, and there was an idol of the god Ganesh, which is the one with the, the elephant, um, uh, elephant head. And he took about a quart of milk and he poured the milk um, over Ganesh's head. Um, and, you know, the team asked our friend who, who lived there, you know, what was going on. He said, oh, he's, he's making an offering. He's making an offering to Ganesh. He's, he's feeding Ganesh. And then later that evening, as they kind of debriefed the whole experience, he said, you know, the interesting thing about that guy is I actually, I actually know that guy. Um, the reason he was wearing that, that three-piece suit is he works in the city, uh, the city being like the financial district of London. It's like their, their Wall Street. Um, and I know the hours that that guy works. Um, you know, the city, Wall Street, you know, any of these financial centers, it's extremely demanding. And he says, when you think about it, today we saw him, you know, he fed that God. But when you think about it, he's really feeding two gods. Um, on his lunch break, he came and fed a quart of milk to this Hindu idol. But then he got back in the taxi and he went back to the city and for the rest of the day, he is feeding his job. He is feeding it his time. He is feeding it his energy. And the problem is that just like Ganesh, who if you feed Ganesh a quart of milk, Ganesh is not going to turn around and feed you. He can't see you, he can't hear you, he can't help you. He can't feed you. He can just demand more and more and more. The job is the same thing. We feed it and we feed it and we feed it. Until we're on the brink of starvation because it can't feed us. It's not meant to do that. It's a good gift, but it's a lousy God. See, this is, this is the way that the true God is different. Because the one true God 
is the only God that feeds us. Um, all these other gods will demand that we feed them until the point where, we're, where we give them our very lives. But the true God, the one true God that we remember this time at Christmas, took on flesh in order to give his life for us. We're reminded in Scripture to remember his works uh, and to set our hope um, upon him. And it's in that same psalm, uh, Psalm 78, that it talks about God spreading a table in the wilderness uh, for his people. Um, again and again, we're called to remember um, our dependence on him. I want to point out one last thing from this, this passage. Jacob, this is at the very end, Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. Now, here's the question. Is he feeding this God? That's not what's Jake, what Jacob is, is doing here. When he pours out a drink offering and he pours out oil, what he's doing is he's repudiating any other source of life. He's saying, I'm not going to draw my life from my wealth. I'm not going to draw my life anymore from any other source of security. I'm going to pay my vows. What we see again and again in the Psalms is that to pay our vows to the God who feeds us means to come to his table and to receive more, to acknowledge that he alone is worthy of worship, that he alone is worthy of our asking him for sustenance. Um, that is what we do at the end of every service. Um, that's why we come to this table at the end. It's our first act of repentance. It's our first act of turning toward him, acknowledging him as the one true God who can feed us with his own body and his own blood. Let's pray before we do that.